Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings will come from A London Mosaic by Walter Lionel George, published in 1921. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. I read a different story every episode to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. If you find yourself not enjoying the story, you're always welcome to try another one. And if it does help, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Before you doze off, and if you would be so kind, please take a quick moment to leave a review and rating in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. You would be surprised at how helpful this is. It really does help me reach more people who need a good night's rest. You're always welcome to say hello or support the podcast at boreyoutosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Tonight's readings come from A London Mosaic by Walter Lionel George Published in 1921 We will have a look at London from the viewpoint of Walter Lionel George Chapter 1 Prelude. The first thing that impresses me as I begin this short book of London is the large number of subjects which I will say nothing. There are many reasons for this. One is that a title such as a London mosaic is as difficult to compose to as life or love. Two novels are still on sale under these somewhat Atlassian titles, but as an author does not wish to be unkind in the first paragraphs of a book, they need not be reviewed. Another reason is that Mr. E. V. Lucas, Mrs. E. T. Cook, John O. London, Mr. G. R. Sims, have compiled various volumes of passionate Baedeker, and I hesitate to set my feet in their mighty footprints. For so much of this, London is unknown to me, and I have learnt little of her indeed, learned little except to love her. Thus, in this book, you will find no lists of houses where famous people lived. This may seem strange, but it wakes in me no thrill to see a circular plate of debased wedgewood imposed by a maternal LCC upon a wall of innocent stucco coated with eternal dirt. 
to read that William Hatslit died here or lived there does not add much to the fact that William Hazlitt lived. It may be interesting to know that Hazlitt chose that sort of house, though it is likely that he did not choose it, but accepted it. A house does not define a man of worth, for men of worth are mostly poor, and their houses reflect them not. Many must have hated them. Yet I happen to know Huxley's house in St. John's Wood and Carlyle's house in Chelsea. There is no getting over that one when friends arrive from America. But it is not exciting knowledge, and I incline to rejoice with Kingsley that it is not the house one lives in matters but the house opposite. Unfortunately, the house opposite is generally just as bad. The only thing that reconciles one to one's house is that the people opposite see most of it. I shall not tell you anything of quaint corners or picturesque bits. I will not cut up and pickle London Ever since the days of Dickens, or is it since those of Dr. Syntax, people have ranged our unfortunate town armed with a butterfly net, swoop, caught cloth air, another swoop, staple in lies in the butterfly net, quick into the pickle jar, now for the cyanide, here they are, London butterflies, ready for delineation by Mr. Hugh Thompson. No, I will pickle you no living strips of London town, and I promise that not once will I portray a humorous bus conductor. One reason is that there are no humorous bus conductors. There are only raucous brutes, working long hours and maintained in a state of pessimism because these long hours separate them from the public house. They do not, however, separate them enough. There will be no east in the west, nor west in the east. There will be no list of statues, for nobody ever looks at statues. There is a statue of George Stevenson at Ouston, and one of William Pitt in Hanover Square. That is very interesting, isn't it? It is a terrible commentary upon fame, that when you erect a statue to a man... He becomes invisible. You pass a statue every day, but you never look at it. You pass it. Nobody cares for statues except the birds, who make them a venue for love and war. Christopher Wren did say that if you required a monument, you should look about you. Thus does the London population.
those who have noticed Mr. Peabody miraculously encased in a frock coat several sizes too small, Mr. Huckerson stark naked, and one of the Georges on his little horse, trotting to nowhere in particular, as was the way of his destiny, will agree that it is no wonder statues fail to arouse even merriment. No, there are no statues in this book. There are no pictures either. I shall not tell you how to find the Madonna degli Ancidi in the National Gallery, nor direct you to the Flaxmans of University College. The catalogues can do that. That is, if you want to know, and are not one of the ordinary beings who use the museums to get out of the rain, or for the innocent purposes of courtship. I recommend the geological, chilly, but leads to concentration. Sometimes in remorseful mood, when the word ought which is a rule, means little to me, suddenly assumes material shape to the extent of a faint mist. I tell myself that I am very uneducated and regrettably unrepentant, that I ought to care that Swift lived in Berry Street and Sir Isaac Newton in Germain Street and that I thought to find desecration in the fact that where the dog Diamond barked, the plates of Jules Balkan waiters clatter. And I go to Jules to lunch and to meditate on gravitation, but Jules can cook, and while eating his meals, you do not meditate, and he is so popular that as soon as you have finished those meals, you are driven out by the eyes of some young people, beaming with love and appetite. Nor may you meditate opposite the houses of the great. It annoys the police. So after this faint attempt, the slender ought evaporates. Perhaps because of that, I have not yet succeeded in visiting the tower, the Roman bath, the foundling, the Sone Museum, the Mint, and many other places which doubtless would improve my mind. I am not a student, but a lover of London. It amuses me much more to notice that one man shouts Paul Paul, expert, Paul Paul, while another does it like this, per mergative's prevashment, that to bask in the knowledge that Johnson lived in Gough Square. This arises, I suppose, from having taken London as I found her, from having taken London and not from being a Londoner. The first twenty years of my life, having been spent in another country, 
I did not treat London as a relation, but as some one whom I liked. Everything of her was interesting, and there is today no muse where I cannot hear the footsteps of her smutty nymphs. The entry into London is such a romantic march. I say march because it is worth doing on foot. But as I speak to Londoners, we had better do it by train, for they would grow tired of her. When Londoners say London, they mean Piccadilly, Selfridges, Covent Garden, that sort of thing. And that is not London. London is Tottenham and Chiswick, the Paragon Mile End, Walker's Court and what it sells, and the black doss places under the railway arches. London is Houndsditch, where everybody looks bad, and Cornwall Gardens, where everybody looks good. London is a congress house of emotions. When one looks at the map, particularly if it is on a large scale, London looks like a splash, rather longer than it is broad, with railway lines radiating in all directions, rather like a spider's web, the centre being tenanted by whoever you like. And one thinks of Dick Whittington gaily treading in the spider's web, but in fact one does not come out of there everywhere into the here of London. One melts into London, and one hardly knows how one comes to abandon the rest of the world. There is a moment when the Essex or Kentish Marsh ceases, so uniformly against Medway or Thames. One has a sense of population of rather large houses set rather far apart, but not yet so far apart as in the counties, of grounds less richly endowed with the high walls crowned with broken glass, which announce that respectable people live inside. One reads names on the platforms, Brentwood or Malling, and there is a sprinkling of villas with plenty of white paint and concrete and red roofs and leaded plains. One glimpses Sarai's curtains and one knows with painful accuracy where to look for the back of the swing mirror. Then again, gaps, cows. It must have been a mistake. It is not London, after all. But there come more platforms and more villas, then a row of shops, shops not branded with the names one would expect to find, such as Boots, or Home and Colonial, but brisk individual shops belonging to Smith and to Jones, 
yet strangely alike in build, furnished by the same shopfitter, just as the owners will be buried by the same undertaker. That is individualism, which, like the chamomile plant, is ever bruised and ever arises. The train rumbles on, and the houses change. They are still detached, but less detached. They are separated by privet hedges over which a man can look, and so they have an air of fellowship. Suddenly, one enters a little colony of houses. One sees a postman on foot instead of on a bicycle. A horse omnibus and no carrier's cart. One sees a policeman too. The world is growing less respectable. It must be London after all. But again come gaps and cows, except that now the gaps are described as desirable freehold sites with loudly advertised frontages. The earth is already torn up and excavations are turning into roads. One observes a solitary gas lamp and on a board the words Macedonia Avenue. No avenue is built yet, but it is foredoomed to Macedonia. All that is the overflow of London. It is the fugitive of London, which has no love or understanding of the town. The movement of a Londoner who rises in life seems to follow a definite curve. If he begins in Whitechapel, the wheel of fortune may take him to Streatham. After a while, he will dream of a place in the country and realise his dream perhaps at Pearly Oaks. By the time his son has come back from Oxford, his wife will have been ambitious enough to remove him to South Kensington, thence the last step to God's quadrilateral between Oxford Street and Piccadilly, Regent Street and Park Lane. After the bankruptcy, the process is reversed, outward, then inward, and outward again. It is like the tide. But the train goes on, and unexpectedly, we find age after youth. Croydon, Sydenham, Edmonton, places where again the walls are high, the oaks thick, where are deep lawns, heavy stucco fronts, little crowded streets with spreading marketplaces. We breathe the air of genteel sleep, genteel perhaps, but restless sleep, for these are all old villages made into islands. They seem vaguely annoyed among the trams, 
they blink at the sky signs and the objurgations of Bovril. But it is too late. Round each little group run fifty streets, each one comprising a hundred houses or so, all complete with Nottingham, Lace Curtain and Virginia Creeper. The old house may call itself the Lodge, but Chatsworth and Greville Towers are round the corner. Indeed, we forget them as we go on, for now, as the train roars over railway bridges, through cuttings we look down on the endless congestion of suburban roofs, each one separated from its neighbour by what the builder regrettably calls a worm. And yet it is not London for London has yet to burst upon our eyes in the shape of the strident Clapham Road or Brixton Road, true London of the black, greasy pavement and the orange peel of which private Ethereus babbled in his delirium. We have still to come to the giant warehouses and their ambitious greyness, to the flat mass of grey, yellow and black, broken only by the washing that hangs to dry, and the narrow gardens where droops and nasturtium. At last here is working London, little, nestling, hard, grimy London, gritty, troglodyte London, London of crowded shop and public house, of tramway and clotted traffic, and yelping children. That is London, of many heads, and to me, all smiling. It is only later, when at last we reach the river that is grey as a signet, and see London rising in a hundred solemn spires, that we come to understand London, to feel the use of that white central pomp, as well of the opulence as of the smiling cleanliness of the outer ring, of the blackness of the inner ring, for all that is part of London's world, and it is well that she should, within herself, comprise all ugliness and all beauty, for this makes her worth exploring. The secret of a city's exploration does not lie in the dutiful following of itineraries, but rather in a lover-like submission to its moods. One should eat in various places, not only within the stereotyped square mile which, in London, in Paris or in Petrograd, is loudly labelled as the foreigner's restaurant. One must seek culinary adventure far afield at Harrow and at Tulse Hill, in Piccadilly and Norton Folgate, and let me assure you, 
that there exists a subtle difference between the cooking at the Cheapside ABC and its fellow in the Brixton Road. Also, one should readily cede to the fancy that is bred by a beautiful place name. It is true that, as a rule, the most attractive names led to the least attractive places, but on the way, one touches singularity often and beauty sometimes. My Baedeker has always been Kelly's directory. That is one of the books I should like to find in my restricted library if I were wrecked on a desert island. For sitting under my breadfruit tree, warm in my garment of yak skin and smoking an earthen pipe of dried I don't know what leaf, Callie's directory would bring up dreams, dreams such as these, Seven Sisters Road, Satchwell Rents, Beer Lane and Whetstone Park. All those dreams have come true, and thus a little of my fervour has been abated by their materialisation by the discovery of Seven Sisters Road as grey, refuse-strewn, rich in Victorian goodness, and in modern slum of Satchwell Rents, as a dusty affluent into Bethnal Green Road, shuttered and locked and suspicious. Whetstone Park, of course, is not at Whetstone, but just off New Oxford Street, and there is no park there, but still those names like Orm Square that secludes itself from the Bayswater Road behind its column and its defiant eagle, like Cumberland Market, Hanoverian, naked whose many iron posts await cattle that never come, contain the seed of romance because they induce quest. And so I will not be discouraged yet, but soon must discover what stones have wrought Jedburgh Street and Parsifal Road. Yet those streets and roads and squares that have their place in Cali are, after all, only the outer shell which the true lover must break through. If he is a true lover, he will soon understand that London lies behind the streets. He will have discovered that in the core of those blocks of masonry lives an inner London. Into that core there is but one way, which I will call the slits. We all know the slits, little spaces between houses that lead inwards. You do not know whither. You pass them every day, perhaps, and never turn aside. Yet through those slits is the way in. There is one, for instance, near Notting Hill Gate. They call it Bulmer Place.
though it is only six feet broad and is buried under an archway. Enter. Ten yards lead you to an old cottage settlement where no house exceeds two floors, where each has its garden, its creeper and its cat, where washing floats undisturbed, and on fine afternoons public beanos take place. This is an old London village caught between the warehouses and shops, yet maintained by the magic of ancient lights. There is another slit less well known, quite near Kensington Square. To the ordinary eye, Kensington Square is entirely civilised and none live there unless they have both money and good taste. In the far southwest corner stands a convent that stares forth blankly upon this world. But walk southeast and turn to the right and go on until, past low, white cottages grown with sterile vine, you meet a brick wall. On the way, small houses well locked, that are quiet and green, will have seen you pass without approval. If adventure is not for you, you will turn back on seeing the brick wall. If, however, it is, you will go on, and on your right find a slit so small that you may not open your umbrella in it. This they call South End. If you persevere, you shall come to rustic cottages of plaster, and at last discover single floored against the side of a great block of flats, the cottage and garden where rot two old green painted figureheads. They live Prunella, Mittel, Salset and their tribe, but go carefully to South End, for the road is fugitive and I cannot always find it myself. I think I find it only on the days when I am not too impure in heart. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy, and if you're not, please always feel free to listen to another episode. Until next time, good night.